Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. If you're a guest with us, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, a series that we've entitled King and Kingdom. And so I'm going to go ahead and just uh, begin our time with a word of prayer this morning, so if you'll join with me. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, with grateful hearts that we can gather together as your people. But I think if we're also honest, we come to you with burdened hearts. Uh, we have struggles. We have, we have different things that are going on in our lives that we're trying to still make sense of. And so we are just asking this morning that wherever we might find ourselves, that you would give us eyes to see, you would give us ears to hear, you would give us a heart that understands uh, what you would have for us this morning. Lord, speak to us, we pray through your word and through your spirit. Amen. All right, why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. And as you do, I want to begin by just telling you a little bit of my story. I remember the first time that I ever publicly admitted doubt in my Christian walk. It was September 9th, 2016, so about seven years ago. Uh, it was a culmination of years of struggle for me, struggle with physical health. Uh, I had type 1 diabetes and had some different challenges there along with that, increasing back pain. I had struggle with relationships too. Um, feeling isolated, not because people didn't care for me or love me, but because I didn't love myself and who I was becoming. And uh, I would put so much pressure on myself to perform, and when I failed, then I would beat myself up, and I would kind of keep this all silently within, and it led to further isolation from people. I was also struggling with my relationship as a pastor. Uh, see, I thought that I could save everybody, and you know what? I can't. But somehow in my head, I thought that it was up to me to rescue people out of their troubles. And instead of entrusting my church to my God, I tried to hold on to it myself. And I was overworking and, of course, under-delivering. I also struggled with my past. Uh, there were certain things that happened in my childhood that I kept secret really all of my life. And I didn't want to talk about it. And it was beginning to kind of bubble up for me, and I was thinking about it. And so all these horizontal realities, though, impacted the most important reality, which was my vertical relationship with God, and I was struggling there as well. So I remember on that September day, being in a small group of men in South Florida, uh, we were all coming together as group leaders from around the country to be trained and to be ministered to, and then to lead out in this uh, thing that we called redemption groups. Now we call Restore here at Four Oaks. And I was not supposed to just be receiving training, but I was supposed to actually lead the ministry here at our church. And uh, I remember for the first two days, rather than being honest about my struggles, um, I just kind of put the happy face on, and we're trying to ask lots of thought-provoking questions to draw out other men's hearts, while at the same time keeping my heart at a distance from everyone else. I tried to prove my leadership to those around me that I might be able to pass the test, but I still was feeling miserable. And so I remember when our small group leader asked, Will each of you describe your relationship with God right now? 
what was the culmination of really years of soul-crushing struggle for me just kind of spewed out. I remember I said, I have lots of right thoughts about God, but I don't feel him at all right now. And then as soon as those words left my mouth, I mean, it was like, oh my goodness, what have I done? I was terrified. I didn't know how these men would respond to me. I didn't know what they would do. And what felt like years of silence, even though it was only a few moments, I remember the response, though, finally from the leader like it was yesterday. He looked at me and he said, Scott, that was the most honest thing that you've said since you've been here. And then he went on to say, and I, my, I would venture to guess that it's probably one of the most honest things that you've said in a very long time. And then immediately he stood up, he walked over to me, and then he laid his hands on me. And they invited all of the other men to lay their hands on me and to pray for me and ask that God would meet me in my doubt. And he did. And I've never been the same. So for Oaks today, we are introduced to a topic in Matthew 11 that Christians rarely talk about. Even me talking publicly about this with you, many people would say, don't do that but one that I think is very necessary for us to talk about if we are to grow in our relationship with God. It is the topic of doubt. Now, you don't need to raise your hands when I ask this question, but how many of you have ever experienced doubt in your walk with the Lord? Maybe a loved one has passed away. Maybe you've received a bad diagnosis. Maybe you've got a child who has suffered. Maybe you've seen or experienced a senseless act of violence. Maybe you've gone through a natural disaster. Maybe there's a relationship with someone that's been close to you that now has ended. Maybe you've experienced divorce. Maybe a friend that you depended upon has now turned against you and is maligning you. Maybe you had this door of opportunity that you thought was going to open for you and it seems to be nailed shut. Maybe you've found yourself under a great cloud of depression. Maybe you've come to a passage of scripture and you just can't make sense of it. You can't make sense of God in this. Maybe you're in that place right now. Can I just encourage you? God wants to meet you in your doubt. Just like he did me. And also like the man that we're introduced to in this passage of scripture in Matthew 11, whose name is John the Baptist. So why don't you stand with me and listen to God's word together. And as we do, I want to learn, like, not only how to, uh, to you know, how to, how to think about our doubts, what to do with our doubts, but I really want us to see how Jesus responds to us in our doubt. So let's, uh, let's read together, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. 
What did you go out to, into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played for the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. Son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is justified by her deeds. You guys take your seats. As you do, today's sermon is entitled, When in Doubt. Uh, and we're going to walk through this narrative just kind of using three headings to help us as we walk through it. Uh, the first is John's doubt in verses 1 through 6. And then we'll look at Jesus' defense in verses 7 through 15. And last but not least, the crowd's decision in verses 16 through 19. So first, John's doubt. Pastor Paul hinted at this last week when we uh, looked at chapter 10. So uh, Jesus has commissioned his disciples in chapter 10. Uh, he says, I want you to go and preach the good news, and you're going to be received by many people. They're going to welcome you. But on the flip side, he said, but you're also going to experience opposition. Jesus is hinting at the fact that there is a shift in this year of ministry. He's been experiencing a year of popularity, but as he moves into his last year, his third year of ministry, he's moving into a year of opposition. And here in verse 2, we see that John the Baptist is really the first to experience it. We're looking more like this in um, Matthew chapter 14. But in essence, straight shooting John, who never compromised to tell the truth, he has called out King Herod Antipas, who had infamously taken his brother's wife, Herodias, as his own. And so John tells him, he says, like, you've got to repent. You are committing adultery. And as a result, John is arrested. He is imprisoned in the dungeon of Machaerus, which is out in the desert on top of a ridge by the Dead Sea. It's a desolate, barren place. Uh, the prison cell, it's half underground, and uh, it's hot, and it's lonely, and it's often known as one of Herod's hell holes. In fact, you can actually visit there today, and they think that they actually know the wall where John was chained to. And so here, John is chained. He is confined. He is confused. And facing impending doom, John, as you can imagine, he begins to doubt. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 3, I just want to read to you a couple of verses. John is preaching to the crowds, and this is what he says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So on the one hand, Jesus has come. He's come in the power of the Holy Spirit. Miracles are taking place. People are being healed. But on the other hand, there is nothing of this fiery judgment. And not only that, but the messenger of the Messiah, he is languishing in prison. And you can imagine John. He's like, Jesus, I thought we were together in this. Uh, like, I thought we were going to defeat the powerful Romans. I thought we were going to rid the world of sin. I thought we were going to bring in the kingdom of God with power, with authority, with judgment. So where's the fire, Jesus? Where's the winnowing fork? Doubt begins to creep in. His circumstances has impacted his view of things, and certainly his understanding of God's word has clouded his judgment as well. Can you relate? My circumstances just don't line up with what I thought was going to happen, God. God, I thought you were going to come through for me. Your plans are a lot lining up with what I expected. And then doubt begins to creep in. And what happens at that point? The enemy begins to whisper, right? God doesn't love you. He's holding out on you. He's forgotten you. He's powerless to rescue you. Maybe even worse, he is punishing you. And so as the doubts begin to creep in, if we're not, before we know it, despair begins to come as well. I'm not sure what your relationship is with doubt, but uh, for a very long, long time, I was simply taught to keep it all in, to hide my doubts. And then to feel guilty if I even had them. And here's the worst part about it is, well, not for you, but I thought no true Christian could ever have any doubt. And so I would kind of pretend like I didn't have any. And then I would, under my breath or think it in my head, self-righteously condemn others for their doubt. Maybe you can relate to that. Or maybe on the opposite side, your relationship with doubt is to kind of take the other approach, to not just kind of know about your doubt, but then almost welcome your doubts, and then to hold your doubts on your you know, chest like a badge of pride, to kind of live in this cultural age of questioning and embracing philosophical things and never truly seeking answers, just kind of being, ah, just the way that it is. Not sure how you might respond to your doubts, but I think we have something to learn about John. What does John do with his doubts? Look at verse 2 again. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So instead of John isolating and keeping his doubts quiet, 
John brings his questions to community. Luke 7, who, uh, that also talks about the same uh, story, he records that it's two of his disciples that John sends. So John opens up and talks to his friends. He asks for prayer. He asks for help. He asks for community to come alongside of him. And then not only that, because John is stuck in prison, he then sends them to go talk to Jesus on his behalf. John, in essence, is saying, I don't know, Jesus, if you're the Christ, but if you really are, you're big enough to handle my questions. You're big enough to handle my doubts. You're big enough to handle my confusion. And so I want to bring them to you. How does Jesus respond? Verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says, John, what do you see? Actually, in that corresponding passage in Luke, before he even speaks, it says that Jesus begins to heal people around him. So in one sense, John is probably like, well, that's not helpful. I'm still stuck in prison. What about me? But Jesus says, you've got to trust in me. My kingdom has come. And then he also takes John to the word. This little paragraph here is a summary of four different passages of scripture from the book of Isaiah. I want to read two of them for you really quickly. Isaiah 35 says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of a mute sing for joy. And the other passage, Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And it goes on and from there. In essence, Jesus says, you know your Bible, John. You know these prophecies about the Messiah. I am he. I am the Christ, John. The one you proclaim me to be, that is me. I am the long-awaited one. But John knew his Bible really well. And he knew that there was something that Jesus left out. I want you to pay attention to me. Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4 says this. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Or over in Isaiah 61, after he talks about the Spirit of the Lord being upon him to proclaim good news to the captives, then he says this, Isaiah 61, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So Jesus left, I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus left out part of the prophecy. Jesus said, the blessings of the messianic age have come, John. 
The dawning of the kingdom is here. I am fulfilling these words. But John, the time of judgment has not yet come. I want you to be patient, John. I know it's hard, John. But you've got to trust in my plan. And he kind of sends out these messengers with a blessing for John. Blessed is the man who is not offended by me or stumble or fall away on account of me is how it often be translated. In other words, John, you've begun so well. Don't give up now. Hang in there. I promise the blessing is coming. You've got to trust in me. I love this interchange because I can picture myself there in John's situation. And I love Jesus. I want you to imagine this of Jesus. Jesus doesn't beat John upside the head. You idiot. What's wrong with you? Don't you know your Bibles completely and fully? He doesn't say, why are you doubting, John? What's wrong with you? No, instead, John is welcomed by Jesus. And Jesus responds to his questions with truth, with his word. He moves towards John. He patiently responds to John. He ministers to John in his doubt. At the same time, Jesus doesn't say all that I'm sure John would have wanted him to say. He gave no explanation as to why he hadn't come with fiery judgment yet. And he gave no indication that John would be delivered from prison. He simply said, John, you know me. You know I love you. You've got to trust in me. Blessed is the one who has not offended my me. Put your hope in me, John. I am the Christ, the same one whose spirit descended upon the one whom you baptized that's me. Trust in me. Can I encourage you, Four Oaks? This is not just Jesus' posture towards John the Baptist. This is towards all of us who are believers today. Jesus wants to move towards you in your doubts. He wants to move towards you in your fears, in your questions, in your waiting, in your longing. One of my favorite things about Scripture is that Scripture is really honest with struggle, with doubt, with suffering. I never really saw this before I became honest about my doubts, but goodness, the Psalms are filled with doubt, with questions. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies exalt over me? How long shall I sleep the sleep of death? This does not sound like someone who's a Christian who would say these things, right? But this is David. He's crying out to God. He's bringing his doubts to God. And then I love the end of Psalm 13 because not only are the Psalms filled with doubts and questions, they're also filled with hope and with truth. 
This is what David says. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Jesus says, John, when you bring your doubts to me, I want to remind you of the truth that's found in my word. I am a God of steadfast love. I am a God who's with you. I am a God who's here to minister to you. When you are crying out to me for help, I will help you. I've come through for you before. I will come through for you again. You've got to trust in me. Hold on to me as I hold on to you, John. Guys, if David can cry out like that, if John can cry out to like that, then you can too. Don't ignore your doubts. Don't hide your doubts. Don't hope that they're just kind of float away. No, the proper biblical response to our doubts is to wrestle with them, to bring them to the Lord, to struggle with them, to fight against them by bringing them into community with friends who love you and want to pray for you, want to hold, hold you and hold the promises of God for you sometimes if you're struggling to believe them. And alongside of that, bring your doubts to Jesus. In other words, don't see your doubts as an obstacle to your faith in Jesus, but see them as an opportunity for you to move closer to him. I love what Alistair McGrath says. He says, doubt is natural within faith. It comes because of our human weakness and frailty. Unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt, doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. William Barclay puts it this way. He says, if a man fights his way through his doubts to the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord, he has attained to a certainty that the man who unthinkingly accepts things can never reach. Doubts are an opportunity to move towards the Lord, to grow stronger in your faith. And so if you're in that place of doubt this morning, can I just encourage you, listen to the invitation of Jesus. Bring it all to him. Don't hide anything back. He knows what you're thinking already. So bring it all to him. Trust in him. Don't let your circumstances cause you to stumble or be offended by him. Instead, trust in him. Know that he loves you. Know that he's with you. He wants you to help you to see your reality and your story in light of God's larger reality, his greater story of his love for you and for me. Amen? That's the invitation. Jesus doesn't stop there. I love this about Jesus. Moving on to second, his defense, Jesus' defense. Now, when this conversation is going on between Jesus and these two disciples, there is a crowd that's listening. There's a crowd that's paying attention, and you can maybe even imagine what the crowd might be thinking. Oh, look at John. What's wrong with him? He's doubting. Jesus sure did tell him off. I wonder if Jesus also might have thought about some of the members of the crowd who were struggling with doubt themselves. 
I love this about Jesus. Not only does he give a secret word to John's disciples, but now he gives a public word for the whole crowd to hear. In other words, he steps up to defend his doubting friends. John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus, and now Jesus is going to bear witness about his friend John the Baptist. Just like Jesus, right? Verse 7. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus says, John's not a swaying sort of reed. He doesn't just kind of blow in the winds, listening to whoever and whatever the public opinion is. No, he's his own man. He tells people like it is. No one can tell him what to do. He says, John's not one who came in elegant clothes. He didn't just kind of sit in royalty in a palace and was a prophet for hire telling the king whatever he wanted to hear. No. John dwelt outside in the open air in the wilderness. He came with camel hair and he And he preached like Elijah before him. He told people to repent. Not only that, but he was a prophet. And then he goes on, he says, more than a prophet. Not just any prophet. This is a prophet with the word of God declaring who he really was. He says it's a fulfillment of the word of God. He's greater than a lot of other prophets before him. Malachi 3 preaches about the coming prophet John. He came as the forerunner. It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then he goes on. Verse 11, it says, Truly I say to you, among these born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. On down to verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. In other words, Jesus is saying, Hey, There's been a lot of great prophets along the way, but in the flow of redemptive history, there's no prophet greater than John. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Samuel. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Ezekiel. And you want to know why? Because he introduced me. He was the forerunner for me. That is some validation of John's ministry publicly. I love this about Jesus. At John's point of doubt, at his weakest, Jesus steps up for him like a strong, faithful friend. Jesus doesn't put his friend down. He lifts him up for all to see. Isn't that amazing? I think about when I was a sixth grader, and I, was, I made the basketball team as a middle schooler. Uh, we had a sixth through ninth grade team, and I was one of two sixth graders and there were six ninth graders, and our team was actually really good. Uh, and we had one guy, the captain of the team, Ronnie Kaluger, who was on the team. He was awesome. He, I, I really felt like he was Jesus in the flesh. The dude had like wavy hair. All the cheerleaders cheered for him, and he was like really nice. He was really humble. Like he could have been so arrogant, and yet he just pretended like everything was fine. And so I just really looked up to this guy. And so I remember uh, I actually, somebody got in foul trouble, and so I got to come off the bench. And this dude on the opposite team just trucked me. And, uh, and then he kind of stood over me. And what did Ronnie do? Just pushed him aside, pulled me up, and said, don't you talk to my friend like that. 
Luger. He's my hero. That's what Jesus does here. He pulls John up off the mat and he says, This is my friend. This is my prophet. Don't you talk bad about my, my prophet, John the Baptist. Love that about Jesus, right? But not only that, he goes on and he says this, to invite us into the story. I think this is great. So right after he says, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But then he goes on in verse 11, he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, he's not saying that John is not in the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is the role of prophet is really important. Absolutely. But you know what's a greater role? It's to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven as sons and daughters. You can be a prophet, that's great. But to be a son or a daughter, to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, that is the greatest privilege of all. Think of Tim Keller. Right before he passed away, he had an email exchange with John Piper and John Piper was willing to share it. And what they were talking about back and forth, Tim Keller, of course, being an amazing preacher of God's word for a long time. He said, but you know what the sweetest thing is for me? The words of Jesus himself when he says, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What a sweet gift that is. No greater joy than that. No greater privilege than that. That we are welcomed into the kingdom of God. But here's what's other. I think also Jesus might have in mind this piece as well. See, as great of a prophet as John the Baptist was, he died before Jesus did. He didn't have a full picture of the gospel. He does lose his head as Matthew 14 records. And so he doesn't live on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection. He didn't get the full picture of what Jesus was up to. But we do. We in some ways can even have a greater ministry than John the Baptist did because we can preach the gospel in a fuller, deeper way than he could. We can preach the one who died for our sins and who rose from the dead and who now is living and praying for us and who will welcome us into his kingdom. No one greater than John the Baptist except those who now get to proclaim the kingdom of heaven that's been made available to all those who trust in the king who died for their sins. I think that's why Jesus then moves on in verse 12. He goes, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. That word suffered violence, it's in the middle voice. So if you're a Greek expert, it means it can be translated either passively or actively, depending upon the context. Meaning the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, it's received violence, or it is actively advanced violently. And I wonder if Jesus might want us to interpret it in both ways. See, on the one hand, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Yes, it's not a physical violence, but it's certainly a spiritual violence that's taking place. Jesus is expelling demons. Jesus is healing diseases. Jesus is dispelling the darkness of the kingdom. Lives are being changed. People are turning from their sin and they're trusting in King Jesus and being welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. But at the same time, 
It's suffering violence. It's being violently opposed. John the Baptist, we know, will be headed. Others behind him will also experience violence. And so Jesus then commends those who follow after me. He says, the violent shall take it by force. In other words, we can't passively just enter into the kingdom of heaven. We must lay hold of us. We must, we must seize it. We must be bold and determined to say no to the world, no to the whispers of the enemy, and to say yes to Jesus no matter the cost. Because it's worth it. The kingdom of heaven is worth it. Jesus, in essence, says, don't give up. And I wonder if in this exchange, Jesus' mind went towards the future. I wonder if he thought about what awaited John the Baptist, not just his suffering, but also his blessing. And I wonder if also what went ahead in in Jesus' mind was what, what awaited him, his suffering and his blessing. You see, While John the Baptist didn't know it, Jesus knew that his suffering, that his opposition, that ultimately his death had a purpose. In essence, he says, John, if I had come to you with fire and vengeance, I not only would have had to destroy the the Romans and the evildoers, I would have had to destroy you too. I would have lost you, John. Because if I don't die for your sins, if I don't step into the gap, if I don't receive the judgment, then you would have to. And I don't want that for you. You see, before the Messiah must come to judge the world, he must come to die to save the world. It's Jesus' message to you and to me as well. Our suffering has a purpose. Jesus says, you will be opposed on every side, but so have I. And just as I went down into the grave and was raised up in power and seated with my Father, so you are invited to do the same. Yes, you will have to say no to your sin. Yes, you'll have to say no. You have to take up your cross. Say no to selfishness and all those other things. But say no to the world, but you will be raised up and one day you'll be seated with me. You've got to trust in me. Hold on to my promises. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That leads us to the last section. The crowd's decision. The crowd is listening on and then Jesus goes on. He says, what shall I compare this generation to? And he kind of shares these two little vignettes. He says, you're like two groups of children in the marketplace. One group of children say, hey, let's play happy marriage. You can be the groom, you can be the bride, you can be the groomsman, you can be the bridesmaids. Just bring out some music, bring out a guitar, we're going to sing, we're going to dance, we're all going to be happy. And the other group of kids, probably the boys, would have been like, boring, we don't want to do that. Okay, 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 like, here's another idea. Let's play a funeral instead, no happy music, let's sing a dirge. You can be the body, you can be the pallbearers, you can dig the hole. We're all going to have some fun. And the other group says, no, boring. I don't want that either. And then Jesus makes a point. He says, guys, John the Baptist, he came along, and his role in redemptive history was to basically preach in the overtone of a dirge, to repent, to make your, 
Like bring your heart to the Lord to say you're sorry for your sin, to turn away from your sin and to trust in the coming Messiah. And how did so many of you respond? Boring. He's got a demon. Well, then the Son of Man comes along, and quite frankly, he's kind of willing to party. He's willing to hang out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. He comes along with a different sort of song. And how do you respond to him? You call him a glutton and a drunkard. No matter what, you're like spoiled children. You can't be pleased. No matter what type of messenger I send to you, you reject him. Jesus concludes, wisdom is justified by her deeds. I think he means two things here. Number one is, I think he means my deeds. Remember the deeds of the Christ that you've been seeing already? They have revealed that following after me is the path of wisdom. In fact, I am the very embodiment of the wisdom of God calling out to you. There's no other one to please you. There's no other one to save you. There's no other one to give you purpose and value and meaning and life. Come to me. But it's your decision. And that's why I think there's another meaning. He says, ultimately, your deeds will reflect whether you are wise or not. Will you follow my message of the kingdom? Will you be willing to experience opposition in order to follow after me and to trust in me as the Christ? Or will you reject me? Will you be like children in the marketplace, dissatisfied, disillusioned, letting your doubt be the final word? Matthew leaves us with a decision here this morning. What will you do? Will you reject Jesus? Will you always be looking for another Christ to save you? Or will you bring your doubts? Will you bring your fears? Will you bring your concerns? Will you bring your longings? And will you lay it all at the feet of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? Will you embrace the one who gave his life for you? who suffered violence for you, who went to the cross for you, who experienced eternal punishment for you, and who meets you with his love, with his compassion in your places of doubt, who invites you to come to him, who invites you to trust in him, who invites you to follow him all the days of your life. Only you can make that decision. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Folks, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I would call this a statement of faith. In essence, you are invited by Jesus himself to look to the cross, to not let your circumstances be the lens through which you see life but instead to let the cross be the lens that you see your circumstances through. Yes, our circumstances cloud our vision oftentimes, but the cross is crystal clear in saying that Jesus Christ came to live and die for you. That he gave his body, that he gave his blood for you. Yeah, we might not have everything figured out. John certainly was confused, but I guarantee you that when G John rose from the dead, 
saw Jesus. Saw Jesus face to face and everything became clear. And that's the invitation to you and me as well. To come, bring our doubts, bring our concerns, to say, I believe, but help my unbelief, Jesus. Minister to me, care for me, love me all the way to the end. Let's pray.